The year is 1996, and two wannabe pastors find a computer in the church basement that has the internet on it. Listen in as they use Al Gore's World Wide Web to travel to the future and see if their tightly held beliefs will have lasting repercussions today. Hello, and welcome to Not Your Pastor's Audio Podcast with your host, Jason Duncan. I bet Judas was a nice guy. And Alex Ryman. Because to die is game, am I right? Well, let's start the show. Hey, listeners, coming to you from the basement of Living Grace Baptist Temple. Audio format, baby. We are not your pastors. No, we are not. We are not your pastors. We're studying. We're trying to be. Yeah. I mean, Alex, how's your summer going, man? My summer is going fairly well. I just worked through Job. It's really great. Um, I feel super excited. I feel like I can just take on the whole world after reading Job. Yeah, a, l- a little bit of a downer, but an up-and-comer. <laughs> yeah, maybe the way you look at it. Well, hey, uh, last week I went to the uh, Dollar Theater in Clio. Oh, yeah, okay. And um, they had the movie Happy Gilmore playing. Oh, they did? Yeah. Is that any good? You know how much I look. <sighs> oh, my gosh, Alex. It's got a the... hockey player trying to be a golfer. Yeah, it's got the ultimate roast in it. <laughs> What? This guy, so I don't want to spoil too much, so this guy, Shooter McGavin. Okay, don't. He's like, I eat pieces of poop like you for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> and Happy Gilmore's like, you eat pieces of poop for breakfast? <laughs> no. It oh basically writes itself. It does. It's so, so funny. But guess what? For our listeners, yeah, I got something new. Ooh. New technology. I'm, I this love is, when you bring new technology yeah. to, to the church. I'm always looking for ways for people to communicate with us. And 1996 has some sweet yields. Okay. What check, do you got? Check it out. You hear that? What, what? That, my friend. What is that? It's a beeper. Are you? I thought only people with medical degrees got those. People are going to be able to contact us using the beeper. So listen up, listeners. If you want to get a hold of us on the beeper, go to notyourpastors.com and you'll find our number there. I don't want to give it out over the show. I don't know who's listening. Right. We just don't want random people beeping you. If you have, yeah, if you have Windows 95 or better, you can go on online to notyourpastors.com. And you can you can find the number for my beeper there, and you can send us messages literally anytime. Wow! And I'll get it. This literally this audio right format away. has taken a whole new level. It is, Alex. Whole... We got a sponsor. Oh, we do. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited for this sponsor, Jason. The people are only going to believe this when they hear it. So just roll roll the commercial. Okay. This better work, Ralphie. I swear there's monsters, robots, and aliens stuck in here! Dog him in water and get him out? Like the time he told the Zoover's dog could fly. Yeah, these don't lie! 
Whoa, Ralster! Gentlemen, dunk. Wow, cool! Awesome! Rapmeister, this could change your whole reputation. The Trash Bag Bunch. Monsters, robots, and aliens in dissolving bubbling bags, each sold separately from Galoob. Galoob does not endorse or believe in any of the opinions held by this Not Your Pastor's audio internet format. Yeah. Alex, this is a really cool toy. You take this item, you oh, yeah. dunk it in water, and then its true identity is revealed. Oh my gosh. I, you could totally use this as like a visual aid for baptism. Yeah. Man, something about this has just got appointed. Just this Every sponsor... sponsor has has to be God appointed. Otherwise, we we wouldn't put them on the show because he said like it feels like something else inside. Oh yeah, and you know, working with our young okay. adults, uh, Kurt Cobain got brought up. Oh my goodness! I... And we know that Kurt, he, uh, you know, he just he just passed. He committed suicide. He did. You know, but before we get into our topic of the day, let's let's hit up our Bible Devo for this episode. Okay, roll it. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Man, that's a classic right there. One of my favorites. If it's in red, do as it said. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Love people. Absolutely. And that's something that just kind of comes naturally to us, right? (laughs) I mean, as two guys studying to be pastors, why wouldn't it? Yeah. Okay. But the topic of suicide for today. Oh yeah. Okay. So we're going to keep talking about it. Yeah, we have to, because you know what? It was, it's my turn to pass trays. Okay. Second Sunday of the month. Got it. Yeah. So I'm standing behind the sanctuary out back with Gerald and and Fred. Oh my gosh. Did did Fred give you a little, a little toffee? He did give me a little toffee. He's always got those in his pocket. Ever since, ever since I was a little kid, he's always got them. Yeah. Man, I love him. He's a great dude. Yeah, he is. Yeah. All great dudes have candy in their pockets. He um, and Gerald, though, they, they got to talking about suicide, just like I was with the young adults. I mean, here, everything just fitting together. Like Providence, the Lord's baby. Providence. Wants us to talk about this today. And, um, you know, they said that suicide... Because you don't have a chance to repent would send you straight to H-E double hockey sticks, Alex. Can I I be honest with you? Yeah. It kind of makes sense. So, like, think about it. What is is suicide? It's self-murder. Yeah. Which is what, Jason? It's it's one of the Ten Commandments. Yeah. And then there was all these reports of, like, Kurt Cobain struggling with his mental health. What does that even mean? All I know is, Jason, from what I've read... Yeah, tell me. I wish... I feel like I could have changed everything if I would have just gotten five minutes to pray with him. Because he could have had, like, a demon or something inside of him. Mm. You know what? I... 
this is why I wanted to do this episode and consult our our, our time machine, Alex. Yeah, I want to peer into the future and I want to see what the future holds in this topic, especially when it comes to you know us Christians. How does this all work? Yeah, there's all only, right. there's only one way to find out. Yeah, type type today's date. Okay, August. First, 1996. All right, and fire up Captain Bible. <laughs> Welcome to the 1st of August, in the year 2019. This is Pastor Andrew Steckline. Regardless of where you're at, and we looked at this guy named Elijah, remember Elijah, one of the greatest prophets, and he was filled with anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts, and you see mental illness just on display in the Bible. And I talked a little bit about my own journey these last few months with depression and anxiety. And and we'll continue in this series to sprinkle in that conversation. It's a very important one. This was the last sermon Andrew delivered. Just 12 days later, on August 25th, 2018, he died by suicide at the age of 30, leaving behind his wife Kayla and three sons. Andrew was in the middle of a sermon series entitled Hot Mess in an effort to break the stigma of mental illness. Unfortunately, Andrew's ending has company within the Christian community. The founder of Project Semicolon has died. Amy Elizabeth Bluell of Green Bay started the nonprofit organization to help others dealing with pain and depression. In honor of her father, who died of suicide, she tattooed the phrase, Love Endlessly, Purpose for the Pain, on her arm with a semicolon. Bluell said the semicolon reminded her, like the sentence, her life wasn't over. The simple gesture inspiring millions to follow suit across the globe. It's impossible to know just how many lives Bluell's message of hope reached. She is survived by her husband. Amy Bluell was 31 years old and will be truly missed. Amy's life was riddled with pain. She was raped at age 13, lost her dad to suicide at 18. She got caught up in drugs, was raped two more times, and at the hands of an ex-boyfriend, she experienced the loss of her unborn child. She suffered greatly with depression, but through it all, maintained her faith in God and founded Project Semicolon, inspiring millions of people to get semicolon tattoos to let others know they could have ended their life but chose not to. Amy had written this. It is the love of my Savior that empowered me to make a difference and to love the world with a Christ-like love even when the world hadn't loved me. It is only through God that I am here to tell you my story and to empower you all to continue yours. Without his love and grace, I know that my story would never have been told. I hope that you all know that you are loved and that you are worth saving. My story isn't over yet, neither is yours. Stay strong, love endlessly, change lives. Maybe the most notable Christian suicide in recent history was that of Matthew Warren in 2013. In the past 16 weeks, since mental illness took my son Matthew's life. An impassioned Rick Warren delivered his first sermon since his son Matthew killed himself at age 27. 
in April. With his wife Kay at his side, Warren told his Saddleback Church congregation Matthew suffered from mental illness since childhood. We had gone to the best doctor's money could buy. We had gotten the best medications. We had the best therapy. We had the best people praying, thousands of people praying. We have an incredibly strong family with deep, deep faith. It just did not make sense. The grieving couple's influence reaches far beyond the walls of this church. Warren is the author of the mega bestseller, The Purpose Driven Life. As painful as these stories are, it gets worse. The stigma against mental illness is alive and active within the church. Legalistic fundamentalism, coupled with grace-starved theology and an unwillingness to draw near the mess, the church can become a toxic environment where the struggling are constantly having the authenticity of their faith and their eternal destination brought into question. While many of these videos and comments on YouTube express condolences to these victims of suicide, there are no shortage of critics coming from the Christian community. Just listen to some of the comments left under the video about Matthew Warren. Mental illness is not an issue with the brain. Mental illness is an issue with the soul. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. There is no such thing as mental illness, and it absolutely is not a sickness of the brain. 1 Samuel 16, 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Apparently, Warren does not even know his sins, let alone repent. Why does this man keep referring to it as a mental illness? No. It's called the devil has a good grip on you and he's not letting go. I admire this man and I respect him. But the spirit of suicide dwelt constantly in his son's head. It was most likely sin that took over his life and mine. Cure for mental illness. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Or how about these comments under a video about Andrew Steckline's passing? This is what happens when pastors do their will and not God's. I feel this is heartbreaking for the family he left. But even though he was a pastor, he denied the Father by ending his life. The one who creates us gives life. It's not up to us. Very sad how a person will have three kids then decide to kill themselves only to go straight to hell. I mean, that is what the Bible says. No excuse. Sorry, sad, but no excuse. Pastors must practice what they preach. Stress, come on. A murderer will not inherit God's kingdom. You cannot enter into heaven with sinful deeds. He is burning in hell now. Suicide is demonic and sinful. He had an unclean spirit in him. So let's talk about hell. Yeah, when it comes to Christians and suicide, the first question that always pops up is, are they going to hell? In fact, that was the first question Kayla Steckline asked her mother-in-law as her husband Andrew passed. Truth be told, this is a really poor question, but as long as it's being brought up, it's one that needs to be addressed. We got our friend Steve Austin on the phone. I'm Steve Austin. I was a pastor when I nearly died by suicide. Thankfully, a suicide attempt was not the end of my story. I'm the author of From Pastor to a Psych Ward and Catching Your Breath. We asked him if he thought a Christian would go to hell if they died by suicide. So, if there is a hell, um, people who have tried to die by suicide aren't scared of it. That's what I can tell you. Uh, I have no fear of hell because I've lived through it already. There's, there's no 
lapping tongues of fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth that can scare me more than my own mind when I'm at the absolute end of my rope. Now, Steve doesn't believe in hell. That's another topic for another day. But I too have struggled with anxiety and depression in the past, and when I was hurting the absolute most, hell was the furthest thing from my mind. I didn't care anymore because I was in hell, and eager to put a permanent end to a temporary problem that didn't feel temporary at the time. Here's a clip of Rick Warren on CNN talking about his son. Matthew was not afraid to die. He was afraid of pain. I remember 10 years ago when he was 17, he came to me sobbing and he said, Daddy, he said, it's really clear I'm not going to get any better. We've gone to the best doctors, the best hospitals, the best treatments, therapists, everything you, prayer, everything you could imagine, um, good support. And he he says, it's real clear I'm not going to get any better. So why can't I just die? He says, I know I'm going to heaven. I know I'm going to heaven, so why can't I? He was not afraid to die. What did you say to him, Rick? Well, in that situation, I said, Matthew, the reason why is there is a purpose, even in our pain. And I am not willing to just give up and say that the solution isn't there. You might give up, but as your father, as your mother, we're not ever giving up that we won't find the solution. Because I really believe Matthew could have been a great advocate for children in the world. He was an amazingly compassionate uh, uh, kid. Uh, he, he had an ability to walk into a, a room, and he would instantly knew who was in the most pain in that room. It was like his antenna up because of his own pain. He could feel it. He would make a beeline for that person, and the rest of the evening during that party, he'd spend that entire time talking to that person, trying to cheer them up, trying to encourage them. And many times you say, Dad, I can help a lot of other people. I just can't get it to work for me. So people struggling with the pain of mental illness aren't afraid to die or to go to hell. But we haven't answered the question yet. Is that where they're going? Here's Steve. But man, I, I mean, I get it. My gosh. So my aunt died by suicide when I was 14. Um, and it was the question that my mom asked her sister. My mom asked first question, where, where's Missy going to spend eternity? And um, it, it was the question people asked to your face. It was the question people murmured at the funeral I, I remember that, and that's the thing. Like we get so focused on the heaven and hell thing that we forget that there are people living right now in a living hell. So my question is, or my statement, I, do, I don't really care to be honest. Like I just, I just don't care, and I, I think that we're we're missing it. Like okay, Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a Buddhist, so sue me. Says, here's what Tignan says. To me, the definition of hell is simple. It is a place where there is no understanding and no compassion. We have all been to hell. We are all acquainted with hell's heat, and we know that hell is in need of compassion. If there is compassion, then hell ceases to be hell. Hmm. So I think that's our job is to to throw water of compassion on the flames of someone's living hell. That's our job as the church. That's our job as human beings, to be compassionate, to show empathy, to help just just sit with people. If you don't have the answers, you don't know what to say, you don't understand it, you've never lived through it, fine, shut up and just hug them. 
This is why asking if so-and-so is going to hell, a poor question, especially if you're examining the situation from afar with no family or friendship ties. It's a question that's impossible to answer, and it distracts us from the people who are currently in pain. As Christians, we often get caught caring more about someone's final resting place rather than the pain in the hell they're currently living in. Instead of asking about hell, we should be asking about help. But let's address hell before we get to the help. When we dig into the Bible, there is no verse, our hard and fast rule, or law that says, if you die by suicide, you're going to hell. In fact, Carol Steckline's response to her daughter-in-law was similar to that. She said, whether you are accepted into heaven or not has nothing to do with how you die. So where does this idea come from? In the early 4th and 5th centuries, there was a theologian named Augustine. Hello! Arrivederci! Hey, Augustine. His book, The City of God, is a cornerstone of Western thought, oh, yes. expounding on many profound questions of theology, such as the suffering of the righteous, si, yes. the existence of evil, I did that one. the conflict between free will and divine omniscience, Ooh, tricky. and the doctrine of original sin. Ah, yes. It's also believed to be the root of this hellacious view of suicide. During the German Visigoth invasion of 410, numerous Roman Christian women were raped. In an effort to console them, I wrote that they were not defiled because they had not assented to the violation, and thus they remained chaste. This brought them to the case of Rome's most famous pagan rip victim, Lucretia. After her rape, Lucretia had taken her own life, and Augustine's response? By committing a suicide, Lucretia committed a greater sin, a sin against God. Up until this point, suicide had never been officially labeled a sin. In fact, during early church persecution, when Christians were being boiled alive, dragged to death, stoned to death, raped to death, sewn into animal skins to be eaten by dogs, boiled alive, covered in wax to be used as human torches, tied to a wagon wheel while having their limbs and genitals smashed to pieces, and laid in the sun to be eaten by birds and ants, or having their stomachs cut open while pigs feed on their guts until they die. You know, that old chestnut, the kind of persecution Christians had before Starbucks removed the word Christmas from their holiday cup designs. Suicide was viewed by the early church as an acceptable way to die, and a means to escape the surety of torture. But once Augustine labeled it a sin, Hello. the church really hasn't looked back. It's a vine that has grown up in the church, weaving its way into sermons and teachings and choking out grace and limiting the forgiveness of God. To say someone who dies by suicide is going to hell can only be found in the Bible if you use deductive reasoning. You shall not murder is one of the Ten Commandments. Revelation says that those who commit murder won't inherit the kingdom. Suicide is self-murder. However, murderers like Moses and David are in heaven because they had a chance to ask forgiveness. If someone kills themselves, the thought is they didn't have a chance to repent and therefore are going to hell. That said, the Bible simply isn't clear on suicide, and there is no direct link to the murdering of oneself equal to that of murdering others. But what's really at stake here isn't self-murder. It's grace and forgiveness. To assume the final act of your life determines your eternal destination is ludicrous. If the work of Jesus on the cross is only good pending our repentance of each sin as it happens, then that work was pointless. According to Paul, we are given the promise of heaven upon belief in Jesus and not upon making good decisions. So let's talk about biblical suicide. There are only a handful of suicides in the Bible. The most prominent is, of course, Judas. 
Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. It's clear that Judas knew Jesus, Judas repented, and Judas died. But at no point in Matthew 27 or Acts 1 does it say Judas went to an eternal conscious torment of hell. If Peter in his Acts 1 prayer can't say with clarity Judas' destination, how can we know with clarity someone else's? Exactly. But there's another prominent suicide which we can't neglect. Hebrews 11 is often referenced as the Faith Hall of Fame. The chapter is full of Old Testament believers who are in heaven with Jesus, like Abraham, Moses, Rahab, and Noah. One of those also listed was Samson, a man who was permitted by the Holy Spirit to end his own physical misery in a murder-suicide. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once. Oh, God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines! Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. His eyes gouged out, his heart broken, strung up like a puppet and publicly humiliated. Samson was in hell. But according to Hebrews 11, he isn't in hell. Samson died by suicide and didn't go to hell. Like, full stop. If you've lost a loved one to suicide, please do not let anyone tell you they are burning in hell forever. If they believed in Jesus, then they were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of their inheritance, no matter how broken their brain was. And not even death, by suicide, can separate them from the love of Christ. And in Jesus' very words, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How someone dies has nothing to do with how they get into heaven. That includes Andrew, Amy, and Matthew, who were in the outer darkness of depression. They were crumbled to the ground alone, weeping and gnashing their teeth. Their bodies cried out in pain as they couldn't escape the burning anxiety inside. They, like Samson, were in hell. The hell of mental illness. But they're not now. They're standing beside Jesus, a God who is lovingly restoring everything including broken brains, to himself. And we know that all things, which include suicide, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Suicide has taken the United States by storm. It's the 10th leading cause of death in America. Um, Two years ago, 2017, 47,000, just Americans, 47,000, died by suicide. So I would say the last 30 years in particular, uh, like youth, adolescent, young adult suicide has increased, uh, particularly uh, 
like adolescent females. And there's another 1.4 million attempts, and that's the ones we know about. The highest rates are among older white men, over 45 or over As an 55. epidemic, it's costing us $69 billion a year, just self-injury as a whole. Teenagers plus some on both sides uh, is the second or third uh, leading cause of death in the United States. We're not trying to soften the blow of suicide or give people license or permission. We're not trying to normalize it. The truth is, it's becoming normal, and we don't want that. We want the church to see the person hurting and left for dead on the other side of the road, instead of passing by on the far side, acknowledging that they're there. Instead of wondering about hell, let's start offering help. If hearing those early Christian tortures made you grimace, it's just a glimpse of what's going on inside someone's brain who is struggling with mental illness. They are being shredded from the inside out until sometimes, unfortunately, the only plausible escape that they see is taking their own life. Our response shouldn't be one of criticism, but one of a willingness to understand. Just a few months after Andrew Steckline's passing, his wife Kayla and his mother Carol took the notes from Andrew's final sermon and delivered the final message in his Hot Mess sermon series. Listen as Andrew speaks through his mother, Carol. When it comes to messy people and to those whose lives are, are messy, we should become students rather than critics. Isn't it true that when you hear the story behind someone's pain, when you hear the story behind someone's mess, you see them differently? You let, if you let that story sink into your heart, it changes your heart towards that person, doesn't it? It's a whole lot harder to be critical We should all be students, not critics, seeking to understand, not criticize. When you're feeling critical towards someone who is struggling, I have four little words for you, and here they are. I have no idea. I have no idea. I have no idea about their story and their history. I see how they're messing up over there, but I have no idea about their story and their history and what brought them to that point. I have no idea what they're navigating in their life right now. I have no idea the burdens that they're carrying and what life is really like. When it comes to mental illness, I have absolutely no idea what it's like to be in their head, to be in their mind. I have no idea what it's like to live with what they're living with. It could be sheer torture, and we have no idea. And here we are over here at a distance, feeling so smart in our assessments of their life, of their struggle, of their complicated life, of their mistakes, of their mess, of their suicide. Remember those four words. I have no idea. I have a friend who was recently in a local business not far from here and she overheard a group of people talking about Andrew's suicide. Criticizing them with all of their judgments and assessments. How could he do that to his family? How could he do that to his children? How could he do that to his church? He should know better. He's the pastor. My friend 
turned with tears rolling down her cheeks and said to those people, you have no idea. We as a family have been criticized. Why weren't they getting Andrew help? Why didn't they see it? Why weren't they praying more? If they would have just been praying more, that wouldn't have happened. They have no idea. Why do we do that? Why do we criticize? For some, we're critical because we're simply bored. Nothing better to do, so I guess I'll criticize someone else's life. For some, we're critical because somehow it makes us feel better about our own life, our own mistakes, our own messes. For some, and this is a lot, for some, it's because it's a terrible, bad, hurtful habit and it needs to stop. We don't even realize that we aren't seeking to understand. We don't even realize how much we're hurting people, alienating people. We may not even realize how many relationships we have ruined because of criticism. Become students rather than critics. And remember the four words, I have no idea. Those four little words can grow compassion in your heart. They can put a lock on your tongue and they can soften all of the judgments and all of the criticisms. Those four words can change the way you view and respond to messy people. Be students, not critics. We have no idea what was going on through Andrew Steckline's head or Amy Ballou's head, or Matthew Warren's head. These are people who loved God, were loved by God, and did God's work. That's why comments like this... Mental illness is not an issue with the brain. Mental illness is an issue with the soul. And this... He is burning in hell now. Suicide is demonic and sinful. He had an unclean spirit. ...have got to go. To call them less than Christian, demon-possessed, heretics, or false prophets because their brains were broken is unloving and lazy. The way we talk about others when they're gone or not around paralyzes and ostracizes those of us alive struggling with mental illness. It sends us into a spiral of, well, if they believe this about them then they believe it about me too. If they believe this about them, then they believe it about me too. If they believe this about them, then they believe it about me too. I'm Robert Vore. I'm an associate professional counselor, a suicide prevention instructor, and the host of CXMH. We asked Robert, what's happening in the brain? Why are people dying? It is very hard to study because most of the time what we end up studying is you know, what we call a psychological autopsy, which sounds a little cold, but trying to kind of figure out, okay, if somebody has died by suicide, what happened before that, which is very hard to do, uh, pretty invasive if you're like asking grieving friends and family. And all of that is kind of secondhand, unless you're looking at maybe their postings or their journals or whatever. Uh, and so we don't have a ton of kind of answers to that. I will say, hopelessness and like isolation so loneliness seems to be uh, one of the more common like risk factors one of the more common things uh, in the the times that we do have where we've been able to study 
people who are having suicidal ideations, but in that in that space, we can kind of interview them and, and research. Brain-wise, what we can see in like a a brain of somebody who is struggling with depression or anxiety, we can see some different patterns, some different things. One of the trainings I went to, uh, the lady said, depression is like seeing life through shit-colored glasses. Okay, things are going really badly in kind of my perception, or maybe they actually are, and then, so I'm going to kind of tend to see things in a more negative light, in which case things are probably going to go more badly for me, right? So it's kind of this spiraling thing, uh, and we can see the way that that impacts the brain in terms of the part of your brain that uh, like activates and sees memories is more likely to associate things with negative memories if you've had negative memories there before, right? So kind of these emotional memories. So then it gets easier and easier to associate things with negative memories and things like that. And it's this really weird spiraling effect that I see all the time with my clients, whether it's anxiety, whether it's depression, and whether that's this kind of a, a chicken egg thing there where, okay, did did what we see about their brain cause that to happen or did that thing kind of cause different parts of their brain to continue working that way because that's what the brain does uh, or is it a little bit of both? It's hard to say. Again, we've only been able to look at alive brains for 30 years and that's still really expensive and time-consuming and so... We don't have, again, kind of neat and tidy answers for that. The truth is the brain is a part of the human body and the human body isn't perfect. Here's Rick Warren again. It's amazing to me that any other organ in your body can break down and there's no shame and stigma to it. But if your brain breaks down, you're supposed to keep it a secret. Huh? There's no stigma. You, you get diabetes, no problem. You get heart disease, no problem. Your lungs don't work, no problem. You break a bone, break a back. If your liver stops working... No stigma. But if your brain doesn't work right, why should you be ashamed of that? Why is it so hard for the Christian community to get? We asked Steve that question. Think about just like, let's make this as simple as possible. The typical person with all their worries, all their stresses, traumas, their insecurities, their fears, and their job, and their family, and their children, and all the other things that they're trying to do. And then you multiply that by, I mean, let's go small church. Multiply that by a hundred people, and that one pastor thinks that they're expected to carry all those weights on their shoulders, that they got to carry all those burdens. And there's this unspoken expectation that pastors, men and women of God, are not human, but, but that's because we forget that Jesus was human, that Jesus pulled away from the crowd when he was overwhelmed, that Jesus crawled into the bottom of a boat and took a nap because he was tired, that Jesus stopped and asked a woman for a drink of water in the middle of the day because he was hot. And we forget that human side of, of Jesus. And so we do the very same thing to pastors. I'm about to get fired up. <laughs> it's about to happen. Uh, well, it's almost like, too, that... You you say the pastors are carrying all this weight and they're expected to. And not only that, they're they're carrying all this emotional baggage with them everywhere, but they're also expected to put a smile on yeah. every day. Yeah. And everything is good in the world. All my, my yeah. kids are perfect because I'm the pastor. My right. marriage is perfect because I'm the pastor. Right. 
Um, yeah, we want pastors that will show up and be, we say we want it to be genuine. We want it to be authentic. But as soon as a pastor shows weakness from the pulpit or peels back that mask and they show that they're human underneath, we're like, oh, what's he going to say? You know, we expect them to have every answer to every question. We expect them to have all the time that we need individually, every one of us. Like we expect them to be God. We expect them to be omniscient, omnipresent, all, all those things. We expect them to be little gods. And it is so unfair. The circles I grew up in, you could either be a Christian or you could be crazy. And crazy is a terrible word. But there was no room for mental illness, especially like the world I grew up in was charismatic, Pentecostal, Holy Ghost kind of Christianity. And so if you talked about depression, anxiety, intrusive thoughts, suicide, any of that stuff, you either had a lack of faith because Jesus couldn't snap his cosmic fingers and heal you, or you were possessed by a demon and this team of people is going to prep at the altar to cast a demon out of you. And you want to talk about a very unpleasant experience? Go through that. Um, And so for me and for countless other people, you learn to hide. You become an expert at performance-based Christianity. And it's, I think, what most people that we see today do. It's this performance thing because we're scared to death for somebody to find out the real us, to find out the truth about our stories. And it's, I think, more than the mental illness. For me, I know more than the depression, more than the anxiety. It was the shame of all that. And heaven forbid they know I was a pastor and addicted to porn for 20 years. It was the shame of all of that that nearly killed me. For as long as any of us can remember, the church has been a social hub where like-minded people come together on Sunday morning in their Sunday best. And I'm not just talking about clothes, but our best smiles, our best handshakes, our best weather report, and our best stories from the week. In other words, the church was the first social media network, a drop of genuine relationships and an ocean of strangers who've been given access to comment into others' lives without really knowing each other. This is where those quick pick-me-up Bible verses fail. Here's Robert. Bible verses about joy or hope or whatever it is, right? Uh, Those aren't reassuring to most people, right? I mean, they may, like, I'm not saying don't point to hope or don't point to joy or don't point to better things to come. Uh, Maybe helpful, but maybe it's not. And so to assume that that's helpful, particularly if that's all you have time for, can come off, you know, kind of, well, here's just this quick nugget and then I'm on about my way and it didn't do much for you, which, you know, then can sometimes make people feel worse. And they say, well, I should have felt better because I should find hope in this and I still feel like crap. Well, now they feel even worse. The things that you find reassuring may not be the things that whoever you're, you're trying to help find reassuring and what they find reassuring matters way more than well, here's my theological understanding of pain or whatever it is, right? I mean, the goal here is how can I help this other person stay alive? You know, how can I give them something to cling on to? Not can I, you know, unfold my theological thing here because I believe this verse should give you hope. That doesn't, you know, that's that's for you. Dropping little Bible blessings on people when you don't really know what they're going through probably isn't going to help. That is what is so inspiring about Kayla Steckline. She is processing her emotions revolving around her husband's suicide in real time for everyone to see through her blog, God's Got This, which is something that we don't get to see on a Sunday morning. But here's the thing. The Bible is jam-packed full of heaven-dwelling characters who suffered from bouts of depression and anxiety. (laughs) 
like David. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And Elijah. It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life. For I am no better than my father's. Don't forget about Jonah. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And Job. Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. What about a frustrated Moses? Please, blot me out of your book that you have written. Or who could forget Jeremiah? Cursed be the day on which I was born. The day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? If the creator of the universe, who has fearfully and wonderfully made all of humanity, doesn't hide mental illness, doubts, and struggles in the Bible, then why do we? Why do we judge? Why do we neglect? Why do we oppress? Why do we ostracize? Why do we criticize? Jesus has a word for us. Here's Kayla Steckline. Devotion to God is best measured in terms of devotion to others. Mm -hmm. John 13, 34 to 35 says this, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. In other words, love for God is best demonstrated by the way you love other people who are nothing like you and may not like you. (laughs) Jesus was the best at this. People who were nothing like Jesus liked him, and he liked them back. God calls us to be devoted to others individually, but also collectively. And that's why the church should be the safest place for messy people. Mm -hmm. Jesus modeled this for us. He constantly moved toward the people and places in deepest need. Like the Good Samaritan, we have to move toward the mess. When it comes to mental illness, we need to know the signs. Obviously, if someone's talking about killing themselves. Uh, Anything with kind of finality to it, right? So, well, I'll be gone soon enough, or uh, you won't have to worry about me anytime soon. If they're talking about just feeling hopeless, or having no reason to live, or being a burden on other people, or just feeling trapped or stuck, or they're in unbearable Uh, pain. I would say change in interest level. You know, I used to be really interested in hanging out with my friends, and now it's not. Uh, that interesting or hobbies or things like that. If they have a family history of suicide, they're at a much higher risk. If they're a victim of child abuse, neglect, or trauma, they're at a much higher Feeling risk. Like I'm a burden to other people, so well, uh, you know, they would just be better off without me. If they seem to be looking for stuff, like if you were to happen to land on somebody's internet search history and you saw them looking for ways to die. Social isolation. People that sleep too much or sleep too little. Uh, giving away of prized possessions. If they've increased, like, drastically increase their use of alcohol or drugs. All those things are things that you want to look for. We asked Robert, how can we help? What can we do differently inside and outside of church? For me growing up, no one in my church ever said like, hey, you can't talk about mental health here. Uh, That's some people's like experiences. That wasn't mine. Uh, But when I was wrestling with depression and suicidality, I didn't know that that was allowed to be talked about, right? Like nobody ever kind of opened that door. And so I think having a lot of those conversations, particularly from 
a stage or from uh, a, a leader sharing their story or things like that, right? Uh, there's a, I don't remember where it came from, but there, somebody, I'm stealing a quote here, but they said, give people the gift of going second, right? Uh, I have the enormous privilege of being able to speak at a number of youth groups and things like that over the past couple of years. And every time I do talk, you know, show up, talk about mental health, talk about my own story, whatever it is, I get messages from the volunteers or the youth pastor or whatever it is that says, hey, we've had so many people like come and, and share things with us that they, they hadn't before. And that has absolutely nothing to do with my ability as a speaker because it's not great, to be honest. I like settings like this. But it just has something to do with saying, hey, we're creating a space where these things can be talked about, right? Where we say it's okay to talk about these things. So if I'm preaching a sermon and I slip in that I was talking to my counselor the other day, then somebody in the audience says, oh, it's okay to talk about counseling here, right? So I think those types of things are, are, are huge, just creating that space and saying, hey, we're giving you permission to talk about these things here. Um, because the general perception is still kind of that you can't, right? Even if you privately say, no, I think that's fine. The next like kind of most tangible thing is then, well, then if somebody comes and says, okay, I, I'm really wrestling with depression, what do we do with that? I'm, I'm having suicidal thoughts, what do I do with that? then how do we remove the barriers to treatment, right? We say, okay, if I'm a pastor and you come to me with this, I recognize that I can do some here, I can't do it all. So how can I help get you where maybe you need to go, right? How can I connect you? Is it, do I have a list already that I don't have to go compile, but I have a list somewhere of people that I trust that I can recommend you to, mental health professionals? Do I, is it insurance the problem? Do you need a ride there? Can I watch your kids while you go, right? Can I, all, all these things are, keeping people from asking for help in any capacity, right? If I have a kid and a part-time job and how, how am I going to go give up an hour to go to counseling, step into that mess and say, how can I be a part of this? How can I love you there? Even if it's messy, the same way that we would say, okay, Jesus stepped down onto earth and said, well, this place is a big mess and I don't, this is all, everybody here is all messed up and broken, but I'm stepping into it anyway. Right. I mean, that that picture for me is always tangible of am I willing to sit with somebody who's going to tell me a bunch of things that I have no idea what to do with? Why, why am I afraid to do that? Well, because it's messy and I don't really know what to do. Well, okay. That's what Jesus did, right? He steps in. He says, hey, everything's a big mess, but I'm coming in anyway and I'm going to love you through it. And it's not you're not going to follow my exact advice or have an instant healing, but I'm here. Above all else, we need to remember that God is always moving towards the mess as well. We asked Steve what was the most impactful moment in his suicide attempt. There I am in an ICU room. Uh, I had been, my body had been found about 24 hours earlier. I wake up in an ICU room, numb from the waist down. I feel like I've swallowed razor blades because I've thrown up so much. Um, I've taken tens of thousands of milligrams of prescription drugs, over-the-counter drugs. I was absolutely determined to die. I had Googled it. I'd researched it. I had done everything I could possibly do. I was crushing up pills in cups of hot tea so that they would dissolve and get into my system faster and stay there. I was leaving my wife, leaving my little boy, not out of anger, out of, out of pity for them. I thought I was doing them a service. I thought I was doing a good thing because my wife 
was, you know, 27 years old, young and beautiful and full of energy and would have a chance to start over. Anybody can start over at 27. Plenty of people won't get married at 27. Um, here's this little boy who's going to turn a year old the next day. He's never going to remember me. He can have a new daddy, a normal daddy. And I hated me so much and I loved them so much that I thought this is, this is the answer. This is the right thing to do. And so I wake up in that ICU room, numb from the waist down, in a fog. Lindsay's there. Her best friend is there. She's trying to give me the benefit of the doubt. God bless her. And she said, babe, what happened? Did you get your meds mixed up? And I said, no. I screamed, but it was just a whisper because my throat was so raw. And I said, no. I tried to kill myself. I don't want to be here. And she crumpled down against the wall, just into a pile on the floor and called her dad to tell her dad, you know, that, that thing that no wife ever, no daughter ever wants to tell their dad, that her husband had tried to die by suicide. And they begged the nurses in ICU to stay with me for the night. And they slept in straight back folding chair, hospital chairs. They slept there with me all night so I wouldn't be alone. And they took turns holding my hand all night. And the next day, they had to go home, and they had to host my little boy's birthday party without me. And I was sitting there, so angry, so confused, feeling like more of a failure than ever because I can't even get a freaking suicide ride. And in the middle of that darkness and shame and loneliness and pain, fear, guilt, all the above, I felt this warm hand on my chest and I heard this inaudible voice, this whisper say, I'm not finished with you yet. And I knew it wasn't me. It couldn't be me because I had never been so low. I was lower than when I tried to die. And here's God showing up in the middle of the mess saying, would you please hold on? Would you please hold on because this gets better? Would you please hold on because I know this really sucks right now. But I'm going to stay here with you. I'm going to hold your hand. While your friends aren't here to hold your hand, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to hold your hand. And I'm not going to let you go. And if you'll just trust me, if you'll just stay with me, if you'll just tell the truth, if you'll just ask for help, I promise this will get better. I promise it won't always be this way. And if I can tell anything to anybody struggling with anxiety, depression, bipolar, you name it, it said it won't always be this way. And even if it is that God promises to be a very present help in time of need, that even if I lay my head down in hell, you are with me. Hmm. And to the church people, let God be a very present help in time of need through you. It's the only way. The end. Now I'm crying mess. <laughs> oh. <clears throat> That's the one that keeps me being a Christian, fellas. That's the one. Yeah, you choose to love me in the middle of my hell. You choose to give me hope in the middle of my hell. All right, I'll keep seeking. I'll keep knocking. I'll keep asking.
What holy, a whirlwind. Holy crap. I mean, that story of Steve. My goodness. I don't I don't even know how to how to process this. Oh, I feel like man. I I feel like my eyes have been opened and I've just been so wrong for so many years. Yeah, it's it's just I'm I'm really glad that we're hearing this in 1996 so we can we can start putting it into the stigma now. I can't believe how many like do you like those three people that you were reading before like in the episode like those people were Christians. Yeah. And they died by suicide. And dude, Samson. I never even thought about it that murder way. Murder suicide. Holy like he, cow. Like, get this. Samson says, like, let me avenge for having my eyes gouged out. And the response is the Lord permits him to kill thousands of people. Well, they were Philistines. Are they really people? They were Philistines. Get him uh, out of here. Yeah. Those <laughs> Philistines, man. If there was anybody who deserved to die, Philistines. Philistines. Easily. Easily. Hands down. But what a heavy, heavy topic. Oh, my Super goodness. Heavy. Super I, heavy. I know now not to say commit suicide. I can say that much. Yeah. Yeah. Death it, by suicide. It's those little... It's those little details that are extremely important, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad we could use the internet to bring this to people today. Thank you so much, internet. Al Gore, really. <laughs> Let's get to the heart of it. It was Al Gore. And you know what? Speaking of the internet and Al Gore, Alex, we've got, we've got some messages from some people via the internet. Oh, my Lord. People typed in some things on the internet? Yeah, let's read them. On the mark, get set. We're riding on the internet. Cyberspace set free. Hello, virtual reality. Interactive appetite. Searching for a website. A window to the world. Got to get online. Take a spin. Now you're in with the techno set. You're going surfing on the internet. Love that song. I do too. It's one of my favorites. Okay, Alex, these are people who have gone onto notyourpastors.com, our very own website. How cool is we that? We are famous. And they scrolled to the bottom of our webpage and they have signed our guest book. What did they say? Now, listen, if you're going to do this, you might have to wait a little bit because websites load really slow, but there is a guest book down there. And people are signing it. I want to know what the people said, okay. Jason. The Basinger boy. He says this. Sup. ASL? You single? Well, it's really hard for me to do American Sign Language. Is over. that what that means? Yeah, I think... Yeah, like it's hard for me to... Well, it's an audio It's an audio format. Yeah, I don't know if why? we'll ever get to video. I don't know if the internet can handle the video, but... <laughs> Okay, moving on. Yeah. So this next one is from Barry Wall. Hi, Barry. Yeah. He says this just three days ago. Wow. I love your format. This is very creative and hilarious. How else would I have found out how Lindsay connects Meatless Mondays to prophecy? (laughs) I grew up in an earlier time, but your podcast hits home. 
Keep up the good work. You see, here's the thing, Barry. We didn't know about Meatless Mondays either until we looked into the future using Al Gore's internet. Yeah. And uh, Barry, what is a podcast? This yeah. is an audio format radio show well, on the internet. What does that word mean? I have no idea. Podcast. It just makes me think of like the bean pods. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Barry, you you must be high. Like a pod, like a spaceship? I don't know. Maybe someday it's, we'll find out. It's too futuristic for yeah. me. Maybe we'll use our time machine someday and figure out what this podcast word means. But Alex, you know what time it is? What time is it? It's time for the altar call, buddy. Jason, this this altar right here on this audio formatted internet show is an altar where where people can cast upon their ridiculous assumptions about mental health. Mm. Every head bowed. You every know what? I see that pastor over there. He's casting. The he's casting his thoughts about mental health being only demon possession right here on this altar. He's casting them right here, Jason. Oh, thank you, Pastor. Thank you. I see pastor. that pastor over there that said a billion times in every one of his sermons that when you die by suicide, Jason, that you go to hell. I see that pastor casting that. Oh my goodness! Right here thank on this you. altar, saying, nope. "Thank you." No more. Thank you for your repentance. I see that person over there, Jason. That person over there, somewhere in the internet. Zero zero one one zero zero one one zero zero one one zero. I see him casting his repentance right here on this internet altar. And there you go, Jason. And that's how you do an altar call through the internet. Special thanks to Steve Austin, author of Catching Your Breath, and from Pastor to a Psych Ward, available now at Amazon.com, the world's largest bookstore. Visit Steve at IamSteveAustin.com. Also special thanks to therapist Robert Bohr. You can find him at RobertBohr.com. Listen to his podcast, CXMH, a podcast about the intersection of faith and mental health. Special thanks to God's Got This for the permission in playing audio clips in this episode. Read the Steckline story at godsgotthis.com. NYPP logo and artwork by Jake Beaver. See his work on Instagram at Jake Beaver Design. Thanks to Alex, Carrie, Christina, Ali, and Steven, our Patreon supporters. Their contributions help bring this episode to you. You too can support us on Patreon and get access to our full unedited guest interviews for just a dollar a month at patreon.com slash notyourpastors or the link on our website, notyourpastors.com. For our listeners in the future, visit us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at notyourpastors. Find our shows directly on our website, notyourpastors.com. Or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, like iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are heard. This episode is dedicated to Sarah Carvanos, 
Thank you so much for the topic suggestion. Thank you. Always keep your stick on the ice. Hey, Jason here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I just wanted to take a quick moment and remind you, if you or anybody you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Always keep your stick on the ice.